Let me ask you now to take out your Bibles with me and let's look at Romans chapter 10. I want us to look together at Romans chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse 5. So Romans 10, beginning in verse 5, we'll read through verse 10. Uh, we are continuing to uh, work our way verse by verse through God's Word. And in these days, through this book of Romans, and our focus this morning will be a verse that I hope is familiar to you, uh, a wonderful verse of Scripture, Romans 10, verse 9. But I want us to begin reading in verse 5. So Romans 10, beginning in verse 5, says the very Word of God. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. What does it mean to believe in your heart? that God raised Jesus from the dead? That is the most important question that we can ask from verse 9. It's the question that this verse demands us to answer. The verse begins by telling us to confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. We're going to have much to say about that. But at the end of the day, that confession is only a true and sincere confession if it is rooted in the heart. You cannot confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, not truly, if you do not first believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. Because dead lords aren't lords at all. And confessions that aren't rooted in heartfelt belief aren't true confessions. And so here is the all-important question of verse 9. What does it mean to believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead? And see how important this question is. See what is at stake in verse 9. You see those last words? And you will be saved. Dear friend, do you know your need for salvation on this Easter Sunday morning? Easter is all about celebrating what Jesus has done for our salvation. If you do not know your need for salvation, the true meaning of Easter will be forever missed by you. And yet this is an idea that is becoming increasingly foreign to our culture. 
we say, you need to be saved. And they say, saved from what? Saved from bad politics? Saved from disease? I need to be saved from racism or ignorance or oppression? I need to be saved from militant Islam or from terrorist attacks? Dear friend, at the end of the day, there is one great threat from which you must be saved. And his name is God. The reason God is a threat to you is not because God is wicked. It's because he is good and you are wicked. God is good. Psalm 107, verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Why? For He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. When the Bible says God is good, it isn't just saying that you should like Him, right? The, the, the ice cream is good. I went and saw this movie and it was good. I liked it. No. When the Bible says God is good... The Bible is making a moral statement. It is saying that God has met a standard of morality, a standard that is taught in the pages of the Bible. God is good because He always tells the truth. He never lies. God is good because God is faithful. He's never made a promise that he doesn't keep. God is good because he is not an idolater. He always values what ought to be valued, and he values it in the appropriate proportion. He values it rightly. God is good because he is patient. And God is good because he is not infinitely patient. But when evil goes too far... He acts. God is good because He is kind. He is merciful. Even to those who hate Him, He holds back justice in order to give them time to repent. God is good because He gives attention to the poor and to the needy, to the abused and the oppressed. When we say God is good, we're saying that God has met a standard of morality. Indeed, He is that standard of morality. God is the very definition of goodness. But what about you? And what about me? How do we measure up against the Bible's standard of morality? God is good because He always tells the truth. How about you? Can you say with God that you have at all times and in all things always spoken the truth? Or must you not admit right here, right now, that you are guilty of telling lies, perverting the truth, manipulating the truth by only telling the part that serves you? Are you not guilty of having helped spread false statements about others? or of flattery, or of slandering others, 
or of exaggerating the truth about yourself in order to boast and make yourself look better. A person commits murder, he is a murderer. A person tells lies, he is a liar. And dear church, we sit in this room this morning as a bunch of liars. We have all fallen short of the standard of goodness, the standard of morality taught in the Bible. We are, by very definition, wicked. What about murder? The unlawful taking of life. The Bible is clear that the sin of murder begins in the heart as an attitude, an an attitude that doesn't value life as highly as you ought, whether it's your life, whether it's the lives of others. Have you been mindful of your own health? Always taking care of your own body? Eating properly? Getting enough sleep? Exercising? Doing what you can to prevent sickness and disease? Have you been a peacemaker among others? Have you loved everyone that you've ever met, being quick to forgive, doing all that you can to help your neighbor? Or is it not true that there have been times when you have been angry with your neighbor, even spiteful? even bitter is it not true that in your facial expressions that in your tone of voice that in your mannerisms there have been times when you have expressed hostility towards others who are created in the very image of God could it be that you've even at some point become violent towards another person Friends, all human history, your own conscience, reason and logic, and the very word of God all stand together in saying that you and I are sinners. We are wicked. And because God is good, he cannot allow our wickedness to go on forever unchecked and unmet. There must be a day when God will put an end to our wickedness. There must be a day of justice. There must be a day of reckoning. And there will be. Romans 14 verse 10. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. When the all-knowing, all-powerful, holy, holy, holy God is for you, there is nothing more wonderful, imaginable. But when the all-knowing, all-powerful, holy, holy, holy God is against you, there is nothing more terrible that you can imagine. And so I ask, do you know your need for salvation. Does every person in this room understand that we need to be saved from hell? We need to be saved from the righteous wrath of a good God barreling towards us?
and that if we are not in Christ, we are not safe. When God ends your life or when Jesus comes back, whichever comes first, God will show his justice by paying us back fully for every wicked thing we've ever done. And if we're not in Christ, we will suffer for every sin. And since your every sin was committed against an infinitely good and pure and glorious God, dishonoring him, the just punishment will be infinite suffering in hell. Anything less would be a travesty of justice. Churchgoer, what is your condition this morning? Are you safe? Kids, teens who've grown up in church, the faith of your parents will not save you. Are you safe this morning? Now you see why this verse is so important. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. So this is really important. What does it mean to believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead? I need to get this right. What does it mean? Well, very quickly, let me just knock out of the way two common but wrong answers. Number one, It does not mean acknowledging the fact of the resurrection. Believing in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead is not the same as simply acknowledging the fact of the resurrection. And don't get me wrong. The resurrection is a fact. The surest evidence we have is the fact that God himself told us that the resurrection happened. But even for those who doubt God's word, there is abounding historical evidence to show that what we are celebrating today really happened. Something happened to those disciples that radically transformed them. Because according to all accounts, when Jesus was arrested and being put on trial and being crucified, his disciples were fleeing like scared little boys. These were simple Galilean men. At least seven of them were fishermen. Another, a tax collector. The disciples were not soldiers ready to fight. The disciples were not trained preachers ready to start a new religion. These were simple men. And yet something happened after the death of Jesus that changed them radically. The same Peter, who was too scared for his life to even admit that he knew Jesus on the night of Christ's death, 40 days later is preaching the gospel to thousands on the day of Pentecost. What is your explanation for what happened to the disciples? 
The explanation that they give is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Yes, the Spirit came in power. Yes, the day of Pentecost happened. But before any of that, the chief reality that transformed these simple Galilean men was that they saw the risen Lord. Doubting Thomas saw the holes in the wrists and the hole in the side and was convinced my Lord and my God. The idea that the disciples made up the resurrection of Jesus is preposterous because they went, each and every one of them, to their deaths declaring that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. This was the chief reason they were martyred in different places, in different horrific ways. And all they had to do was acknowledge, we made it up. We stole the body. We lied about it. And yet everyone, when the blade was at their throat, held fast to what they had seen. And they called themselves witnesses. Witnesses. How do you explain the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, the man we know as the Apostle Paul? This man was a Christian killer. This man was actively pursuing believers in order to arrest them. And suddenly this man who hated Christianity is preaching Christianity. What happened? His explanation, I saw the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul said, from that moment on, nothing else compared in my life to knowing him. Why in the world would Paul have made up the resurrection? He was in the middle of an incredibly successful career. He was sitting at the feet of the greatest Jewish Pharisee of the first century, Gamaliel. He was on his way to big things. And when Paul became a Christian, he lost his reputation. He lost his job. He was persecuted in every city. He was stoned. He was whipped. He was imprisoned. And he was ultimately killed by Nero. Why would Paul make up the resurrection? The only explanation for Paul and the other disciples becoming who they did is that they really believed Jesus Christ was alive. Frankly, this is why Christianity exploded in the Roman Empire. It is chronological snobbery to assume that all of those people coming to Christ in the first centuries of the Roman Empire were gullible idiots who would just believe any old tale they were told. People back then didn't think for themselves. They weren't as civilized as we Americans. It's a bunch of junk. The reason people were coming to Christ in droves is they were becoming truly convinced by the testimony of witnesses that Jesus rose from the dead. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. Writing, by the way, depending on how you date it, either 53 or 54 A.D. Okay, 53 or 54 A.D., so no more than 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, 
that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, Paul makes the claim to the church in Corinth 20 years after the death of Jesus that Jesus was seen by over 500 people as well as the disciples. And since in that day people were counted by head of household and since Paul uses the masculine brothers, many believe this number doesn't even include the women and children who saw it. And Paul tells the Corinthians when he writes this, most of those people that saw him are still alive. Folks, Corinth was a trading town. It was a business town. It was a town where people traveled outside of Corinth from city to city. There was no reason why people receiving this letter from Paul would not go and verify on their next trip through Jerusalem. And Paul's inviting them to do so. Luke tells us about the men on the Emmaus Road who saw the risen Lord Jesus Christ. He tells us that one of those men was named Cleophas. Cleophas was well known in the early church for decades as a witness to the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. To those in Corinth who were beginning to question the resurrection, Paul met their questions with an invitation to check with the witnesses. And he said, if Christ has not been raised, my preaching is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is meaningless. If Christ has not been raised, Paul said, then we Christians are of all people most to be pitied. Paul knew what was at stake if Jesus was still in the tomb. And he wasn't afraid to say, go check it for yourself. (laughs) The truth is, we have more reliable witness and historical evidence that Jesus Christ rose from the dead than we do that Alexander the Great ever existed. So why don't people believe it? People don't believe it because they don't like its implications. The resurrection means science can't explain everything, and that's scary to the secular mind. And let's face it, if Jesus rose from the dead, that changes everything. It means that miracles really do happen. It means that Jesus really is God's Son, and it means that you have to come to grips with that. And so people are just more comfortable resting in silly, unscientific theories that we talked about on Wednesday night rather than dealing with the historical evidence that a man who was dead really did get up. So the resurrection is a fact. But Mount Hermon acknowledging the fact of the resurrection is simply not enough. You can acknowledge the resurrection of Jesus and go to hell. Satan believes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is no fact he knows better. There is no fact he hates more. But he knows it. And it doesn't save him. 
Acknowledging the fact that Jesus rose from the dead is not the same thing as believing in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Number two, very quickly, it does not mean simply feeling that the resurrection is true. I think some people read this verse this way. I'm, I'm to believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. So I'm to, have a, I'm to have a feeling. I don't care about evidence. I don't care about reason. I don't care about facts. No, I just need to know blindly in my heart a feeling that it's true. Reminds me of a, the movie Return of the Jedi, right? The Death Star has just blown up. And Han Solo and Princess Leia are watching the explosion in the sky. And they know that Luke was on the Death Star just moments before. And Han, to comfort Leia, says, I'm sure Luke wasn't on that thing when it blew up. And Leia responds by saying, he wasn't. I can feel it. Right? I have a subjective assurance. I have an inner feel. I don't have any facts. <laughs> I don't have any reason. I just, I just know he made it off alive. And that's how some read Romans 10 verse 9. You just have to kind of have a deep, I just know that Jesus rose from the dead. That that's what's required for salvation. I don't think that's it at all. Because when Paul answers the Corinthians who are having some doubts about the resurrection, he doesn't tell them, well, you just have to know it deep down. That's not what he says. He points them to evidence and he points them to witnesses. All right, Justin, enough beating around the bush. So then what does it mean? What does verse 9 mean when it says, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? Well, I see three helps here that give us the answer. Okay? Why am I going to show you the helps? Because I don't want you to just take my word for it. Your faith doesn't need to be based on what Justin says. You need to see it for yourself in the word of God and let your faith be rooted in that. So let me show you the three helps and we'll see our answer. And this will be pretty quickly. Number one, our first help is the context of our verse. Because Romans 10.9 doesn't stand alone. Romans 10, 9 comes after Romans 9, verse 30, all the way through Romans 10, verse 8. And we've spent six sermons on those verses. And we have seen over and over in those verses that Jesus has accomplished righteousness for us. The Jews stumbled over this and they continued trying to merit God's favor on their own through law keeping. But Paul says Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus was the point of the law. Jesus was the one to whom the Old Testament law always pointed and he kept God's law perfectly for us. So he says salvation is not to be pursued through works Salvation is to be found by trusting the one who has already done the work for us in our place. Christ is our righteousness before God if we trust him. This is our first help. This is the message of Romans 9.30 through chapter 10, verse 8. Christ has done it all. He is our righteousness. Second help is the word Lord in verse 9. 
there does seem to be a connection between believing in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. There's a connection between heart and mouth. There's a connection between Jesus being raised from the dead and Jesus being Lord. And we know what the connection is because Paul already told us. Way back in the third verse of Romans, Romans 1, 3, and 4, Paul says, The Son was descended from David according to the flesh, listen, and was appointed, and that's the right translation, not declared, he was appointed to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, Jesus did what we've all failed to do. We have disobeyed God, and God rightly responds to our disobedience with punishment. Jesus never disobeyed. Jesus did all that his Father called him to do, and he did it perfectly, even when it meant incredible suffering, even when obedience even when obedience meant going to the cross, even when it meant bearing on himself the wrath of God in the place of sinners, Jesus obeyed. And now, having done perfectly everything necessary to save us, and having fulfilled perfectly all righteousness, God raised Jesus from the dead. Why? To appoint him the Son of God in power. Jesus was already the Son of God as the second person of the Trinity in His divine nature, but now as a human being, as one of us, with, with ears and a nose and fingers, Jesus was appointed the Son of God in power. He was made King of kings, Lord of lords. You see, the only way for us to be saved is there must be a mediator between God and man. And Jesus became the God-man. That we would have that mediator. He is the first of the resurrected humanity and God raised him up because he had finished his work and God accepted his work and God blessed him and gave him all authority in heaven and on earth and sat him on the throne as king of the world. Why the resurrection? Why did God raise him from the dead? To show that Jesus, as a true man, as one that we can relate to, has been given the power to save us and to hear our prayers and to care for us and to bring us to heaven. So what are we believing when we believe in our hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead? We are believing that Jesus has done everything necessary for our salvation and his work has been accepted by God in our place. We don't need to add to what Jesus did. We don't need to take away from what Jesus did. God has already accepted it. All you have to do is claim it by resting on Christ and you will be saved. I mentioned there were three helps in the passage. The first was the context, Romans 9, 30 through 10, verse 8. The second is that word Lord in verse 9. 
the third help here is that word believe. Everybody say believe. This word is used so often in the Bible that we know exactly what it means. It is not a leap in the dark. It is not a subjective feeling of blindly hoping that something might be true. To believe in the Bible is to take God at His word. To believe in the Bible as it is used in the Bible is to receive God's word as what it is, His word, and to trust it. To believe in the Bible is a response to light. It's highly rational. When God speaks to you, you are not being irrational to believe it. When God speaks to you, you are not being a fool to believe it. It's the only right thing to do when God speaks. And this is why Paul refers to the heart. Because central in the Bible's concept of faith is this sense of trusting. And trusting is something that happens in the heart. You can acknowledge that Jesus rose from the dead with your head. But in the Bible, your heart includes both your mind and your emotions and your will. And to believe in your heart is to trust. It is to step out in trust and believe that God really has accepted what Christ has done for you. And to put all your eggs in that basket. To entrust yourself completely to the salvation that Jesus gives. Okay, so we're almost done. Imagine you're on an island. And the island is on fire. And if you stay on the island, you will burn. Your future is fire if you stay on the island. You want to escape, and so you run to the shore of the island, and you look off, and in the distance, you see another island. And that island is, is like paradise. It's beautiful, and it's clean, and it's shining in the sun. Fire coming, paradise on that other island. How are you going to get there? There's two boats on the shoreline. One boat is called works. And you can get in that boat and you can try your best to work your way over to that island. The only problem is that there's an anchor attached to this boat and it cannot be removed. And that anchor is immovably stuck in the dirt just underneath the water. And so you can paddle as hard as you possibly can and you don't get anywhere. If you try the boat of works, you die. And then there's this other boat, and it's called the Lord Jesus Christ. And it looks like a very simple boat, an ancient boat. In normal circumstances, people might make fun of you for thinking that a boat like that could get you across the water to the other island. That boat won't get you anywhere, they'd say. But right now, there's a man in that boat, and it's the Apostle Paul. And he is saying to you that everyone who believes in this boat, meaning everyone who trusts it enough to get in it, will make it to the other side and be saved. 
Everyone who has faith in this boat, meaning everyone willing to put their lives on the line to risk everything and step into a relationship with Jesus Christ and to trust him alone for salvation, anyone willing to just put everything else aside and get in that boat, they will find that he gets them safely to heaven. The message of the resurrection is that the work is done, that Jesus is a true Savior for all who will be saved. But here's the question. Do you believe it? And it's not enough to say you believe it. Have you gotten in the boat? Does Easter mean something to you? Because when you celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, you are celebrating the fact that God has accepted what Christ has done for you. Does Easter mean something to you? Because celebrating the resurrection of Jesus is celebrating your salvation, finished and accomplished and guaranteed, so that you now have confidence because of the risen Lord Jesus that when you die, you will go to heaven. Is that what you're celebrating today? Your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ that he will get you to heaven? Or are you still standing on the shore with the fire headed your way? And are you refusing to truly believe, to truly rest in your heart in the gospel truth that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. The message this morning is simple. Will you believe? It's the most important question in the world. It's an inner act. You believe in your heart. But we solidify it in our own hearts and before God and before others when we are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And as we go under the water and as we come up out of the water, we are declaring that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ are my hope of heaven. Have you believed? Have you been baptized in the name of Jesus? Are you counted as one of His resurrection people? I pray that if you haven't believed that you would carefully consider what I've said this morning and that you would come to the place of setting your hope on the risen Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. Let's pray.